Welcome back to the show. My name is Michael Lynn, and this is the MongoDB Podcast. Today on the show, Vin Vashista, founder and AI advisor. Vin is the author of From Data to Profit, published by Wiley in 2023. It's the playbook for monetizing data and AI. Vin is the founder of V-Squared and built the business from client one to one of the world's oldest data and AI consulting firms. He also teaches courses on AI strategy and product management. His background combines nearly 30 years in strategy, leadership, software engineering, and applied machine learning. Vin, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I haven't read your book fully, but I've gone through it and I'm, I'm really impressed. I love the, the thought space around turning data into profit. And in the course of researching for our discussion today, I came across a quote. It's by Clive Humby, interesting chap. I'm going to read the, clo- the quote and then we'll, we'll get into the conversation. Data is the new oil. It's valuable, but if unrefined, it cannot really be used. It has to be changed into gas, plastic, chemicals, etc., to create a valuable entity that drives profitable activity. So must data be broken down, analyzed for it to have value. I'm curious if you've heard that before and, and what your thoughts are on that quote. Yeah, I think I've been hearing that for, I don't know, almost 10 years now. <laughs> it's an interesting quote because on one hand, it's right. It is a data is a novel asset class. But when you compare it to mm-hmm. oil, you sort of miss the purpose. And when yeah. you think about oil, I use a barrel of oil, it's gone. When you think about a data set, mm. it can be monetized multiple times. It can be used multiple times. It doesn't ever run out as long as it is current, as far as the patterns that are contained inside of it, it can be used for as long as it really holds. And that's one change and one way that we have to think about data differently. The other one is Mm. thinking about, oh, it has to be refined. It has to be, well, yes and no. If you're gathering it intentionally, then you're gathering it as a refined product. If you gather it with mm-hmm. the right context, whether that's business business cu- context, customer context, or really any of uh, any of the context around what generated the data, then mm-hmm. you are looking at a refined asset. So it's one of those that can actually be mined in a refined state if we do the mining properly. And then thinking about mm-hmm. it as the raw material for machine learning, for deep learning, for AI, that's definitely the right way to think about it. But, but it's more complex. And I think over the years, we've sort of refined our understanding of what data is and how we monetize it. Hmm. Well, talk, talk to us a little bit about your journey and what inspired you to write From Data to Profit? Um, you know, honestly, I didn't realize I was ready to write the book until Wiley approached me and said, would you like to write the book? <laughs> It was it was sort of a realization that this is the the aggregation of so much material that I've been writing and creating that started when uh, I launched V squared and trying to get mm-hmm. from we have technology that we can deliver to businesses care because I couldn't get budget for anything complex unless I started talking to C level leaders unless I really got them bought in on spending some money. And that meant I had to show them the returns. I had to tell them what they were spending money on. And I had to refine this process from being really a, an R&D shop 
that did the model development, that did more of a traditional data science consulting model too. I also, in order to get that budget, I also have to talk to the rest of the business and explain where the value is. And so I created a ton of frameworks to help me do that because it wasn't just doing it at one client. It was dozens of clients. And so I had to do this over and over again. And just like any good consultant, we create our frameworks, create the playbook. And that became from data to profit. Mm. So almost a codification of the the practice of consulting in the in the data science space. Yeah, I, I leaked some secrets. How would I put it that way? And I think it's been a good thing. We need to open source some of our knowledge. We do, yeah. So talk about the central thesis of the book. It is that... First, technology change is continuous. That's something that Rena McGrath put forward in The End of Competitive Advantage back in 2012, 2013. If you take that as a given, technology will continue to change, continue to evolve, and that's never going to stop. It changes the way that you have to approach the firm. It changes the way you have to approach technology. It it truly transforms every part of strategy and strategy planning. Because we're used to having long time spans to create advantages for ourselves using technology or anything else. And then we can monetize it over very long time scales. And that means that if technology changes slowly, you sometimes have as much of it as a decade to wait for, wait to see if this is real, come off the sidelines when there's more certainty around the technology, spend a couple of years in trial and error mode finally get it right. And then you have still, you know, even if you do it at that slow pace, still have a five-year runway, but we don't have that anymore. We're looking at technology changing every two to three years. And so that's the central thesis of the book is given that, what do you have to do as a business to adapt so that Mm -hmm. you're not continuously disrupted by new technology? So that the firm is really built to monetize each one of these technology waves. Yeah. Well, in today's world, the explosive growth of ML and AI has literally every business thinking about and maybe even prototyping applications in this space. And the rate of change is just, it's just exponential. How do you envision businesses changing their culture to adapt to this speed? Well, the first thing you have to do is realize As you iterate, nothing's going to ever be perfect. That's been true in the past, but we've sort of pretended that we make these decisions. They're amazing decisions. We're never wrong. And obviously, reality proves that that's not accurate. But when things move slowly, we can sort of get around some of the mistakes that we make. Now that they're moving quickly, we have to be responsive. We have to be able to admit that we made the best decision possible with best available data, best available expertise, but we're going to get better data. We're going to learn and continuously improve. So we need to, from a culture chain standpoint, stop punishing people for saying this is imperfect. We have to Mm -hmm. stop punishing people for finding defects. And this is more of a software engineering paradigm or a technology paradigm. If you find Mm -hmm. a bug, that's good. (laughs) If you find it before it gets shipped, that's great. If you find it early on during the planning stages, that's even better. If we're making some bad decisions up front and we figure those out, you know, two months, three months in, that's great. We've saved ourselves a ton of cash. But when you think about it from a business standpoint, every time you point out an error, 
you're either, you know, threatening someone's job or you're viewed as an obstruction. <laughs> it's like, oh, can you, 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 why are you still pointing all these things out? Let's just move forward and fight. So you're seen as a barrier and you can see all of these things have to change because the most valuable data the business has is the data that doesn't agree with you. And if all mm. you're looking at is data that says you're doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing. Well, the data is useless. Why? Because you're not making any sort of changes or improvements based on it. It would be like if your car only told you everything's great and didn't tell you, oh, hey, so, you know, check your engine or your brakes are low, <laughs> your tire pressure is low. If it just yeah. never told you that or if when it did, you said, eh, I don't want to hear it. You know, you think you have to think about data differently. You have to rebuild an organization so that when you see data, it's not a threat. It's yeah. such a huge shift in thinking. And when you do that, when you say the business is never going to be perfect, we're going to continuously transform. We have to continuously transform to adapt to technology. We might as well continuously improve too. You mm. really begin to re-envision the culture of a business as always imperfect, always trying to get better, always a challenger. And that sort of business competes against itself. It competes against yesterday. And it is one yeah. of the most powerful constructs that you can implement for a culture change. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, the challenges that most of the listeners are facing are techn technological in nature. But to really implement change and to really find value in data, you even mentioned it, it you need to up-level and it needs to become an organizational change. That's got to be a challenge for, for someone like yourself. I mean, you're clearly a technologist, but in your consulting role, do you often, do you often spend more time coaching through organizational change around leveraging technologies like data science? Yes. It's a bigger, we call the technology component of it, the, the last mile problem. And businesses mm. are focused on solving the last mile problem. What they don't understand is if the business isn't built to use technology internally or to monetize technology through products, solving the technology problem really doesn't matter. So there's a mm. first mile problem that you have to end up solving before anything else can be successful. And that's what data and AI strategy does. That's what monetization strategy and product strategy does is it helps to solve mm -hmm. the first mile problem. And I keep saying data and AI, data and AI, but really this is a bigger umbrella of technical strategy and building firms yeah. that can profit from and use the same frameworks for whatever the next wave is. Whatever yeah. that ends up being, if you're adapting the business to monetize technology and to look further ahead and understand the implications of the next technology wave, because we know what comes next, Platforms aren't exactly a secret. The IoT devices getting more data from different places. I mean, th these are not secrets. It's not like somebody's hiding this information. Mm -hmm. We know what's coming <laughs> and we can begin to sort of plan for, well, what would our architecture, internal architecture look like? But also, you know, the technology yeah. organization is preparing, but the business can too. What would this mean when mm -hmm. it comes to monetization? How would this play to our business's strengths? What could we make space for today so that whenever this does show up, we can simply integrate it in and we're ready to go. And so we will be to market faster. It's a different business mm -hmm. paradigm. Yeah. So, so many businesses are looking to leverage the power of data. And there's so many different business models, 
different organizational structures. How does the book address change so that it's applicable across all of these different types of business? The important component to realize is that technology breaks down silos. Digital didn't really achieve that because we built it in boxes. So you have applications for marketing, you have applications for sales, you have applications for your operations, your supply chain, manufacturing, HR. So we built digital technology in silos, but we didn't have to. We just built it to fit the businesses that we found. Data is one of those technologies fundamentally where data from one side of the business could be necessary any place else in the business. So by nature, data breaks silos down. It crosses these silos. You also begin to realize that workflows go from HR to every part of the business. They go from finance to every part of the business. Marketing touches multiple parts of the business. You begin to realize, wait, so the business is really this connected entity that we've segmented in a way that doesn't make sense. And that's Hmm. the fundamental thought process is it doesn't matter what industry you're in, that has to happen. When you begin to look at data as sort of a higher level first class citizen that can help the business understand itself better, understand its customers better. At that first principles view, doesn't matter what industry you're in, you want to understand mm-hmm. your customers better. You want to understand the marketplace better. You want to understand your own operations better and you want to optimize. So there's common goals and data, data science, models, AI, whatever you want to call it. We support all of them. I say data scientists are strategic by nature because we help to do two things that no other technology has ever been able to do. We can manage complexity and reduce uncertainty. And Hmm. that, if you look at what strategy deals with, well, it's complexity and uncertainty. So we're strategic by nature. We can help every part of the business understand itself better. We can help deliver functionality in new ways to every part of the business. We can help support customer features so that we're improving outcomes, driving new outcomes, improving experiences, driving new experiences for customers. So it doesn't matter what industry you're in. It doesn't matter what the company size is. It, it is at a first principles level, the exact same frameworks that flex and customize to work no matter where you put them in because there are some universal constants when it comes to business, when it comes to the way that data works and how technology should be implemented in a business. Yeah, yeah. So I'm imagining that the book is going to appeal to C-level executives, uh, organizational decision makers, technology decision makers. How, what advice would you have for, for these types of executives who are trying to implement change, leveraging data, and recognizing that there can be a massive, potentially negative impact on the culture. I think what's important to keep in mind is the business is the business. One of the frameworks is meet the business where it is. We want the business to be someplace else, but let's be real. It's not. And if you meet the Mm -hmm. business where it is, what you're really doing is saying it's okay. And this is one of the great things about continuous transformation and continuous improvement. It doesn't matter what the baseline is, and data can help you get the baseline. It doesn't matter what's happening today. It doesn't matter. We know it's broken. So it doesn't matter how broken it is or how badly broken it is. It doesn't. And so you can hear how this is a different 
approach to business culture. It's not blame. It's not, oh, it's bad. It's here's where we are. Now let's go, but you know, let's go be better. Let's figure out what it takes mm. to be better. Decisions are made with data. Decisions are made as the result of experiments. We're going to include experts. So we're not leaving people behind because where do we start from? You know, what's that baseline? Well, it's our experts. Yeah, mm. we have data, we have models. I've never seen a version one model smarter than an expert. So let's start with experts mm-hmm. and figure out where the gaps are. And then let's start fixing yeah. and just take that engineering mindset. And it's such a powerful thing to take an engineering mindset into C-level leaders uh, sort of domain mm-hmm. and change the way that they think to say, look, let's do experiments. And then we just fix one problem at a time. Let's find out what works. Let's prove it. Let's figure out what doesn't. Let's fix it. And, and let's find problems yeah. faster. Let's fix problems faster. Let's be more certain about the fixes that we put in place. And let's just iterate. And who cares what the new baseline is? It doesn't matter. Let's just get a better one next time. And let's get a better one next yeah. time. It, you know, it, it's empowering in a lot of ways because it's almost like forgiveness. You've gone to confessional and you've come out now and it's all okay. <laughs> Whatever you've done wrong, it's just absolved. <laughs> Sprinkle some holy water yeah. on it and we're all good. Yeah. It's like change bankruptcy. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> <You> exactly. <know? laughs> yes, it's bad, but yeah. guess what? It's bad everywhere. <laughs> right, right. That's a humbling admission. In yeah. the book, you talk about a three-phase data organizational development framework. Can you talk a little bit more about that for the listeners? Yeah, I think at a low maturity, you have a decentralized structure where the resources that you need mm-hmm to implement are all over the place. And that can be a challenge Mm -hmm. because you have low maturity, your processes aren't very good. You have duplicate infrastructure all over the place and it's inefficient. So learning from one part of the data organization never gets to the other parts. Learning from one business unit never makes it to the other parts. So phase one, we're decentralized, we're all over the place. We don't understand that we need to have an aligned single vision, which is the data and AI strategy, obviously. But Mm -hmm. we don't really realize that we have to all be moving in one direction. When you centralize, now it's sort of that command and control structure, even though there's still that iteration, even though you're still improving. Now an improvement from one of the data teams gets to all the rest of them. So if you figure out how to do something more effectively from a data engineering standpoint, or if you optimize your experimental workflow, any one of those just immediately gets propagated because you're all in the same organization. Mm -hmm. So you can iteratively improve. When you see four or five different tool sets doing the same thing, you can just pick one and everyone sort of, you know, centralizes on that one. What happens is your data team gets more mature faster. But then what happens sometimes a little bit too innovative, sometimes a little bit too visionary, sometimes a little bit too disconnected from the rest of the business. And no matter what you do, there's always one layer farther away than it should be from value. And so you decentralize. Once you've got a very mature organization that's capable of delivering and that's delivering efficiently, then you start putting resources and Meta did this. There's a ton of other companies that are beginning to do this now that they have really mature data practices. They're putting resources into frontline teams, into product teams and saying, look, you support this. You own this just as much as everyone else does. And when you're that close to value, what you deliver shows up faster and it's exactly what those internal or external customers need. 
And that's another place where iteration gets faster, but it's not iteration on delivery, it's iteration on value. So you're continuously delivering more and there are fewer sort of gaps where you deliver something and it's 80% of what was asked for. Now you're looking more like 95, 100%, like right on target. Why? Because you live with these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's almost like a, a continuum mm-hmm. and an evolution for your development framework. Yep. And I like that there's there's three phases. But what about the the role transformation? In the book, you mentioned RIM3, uh, people groups framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the core Can you talk RIM. talk a little bit about that? Yep. Yeah, core RIM, that's it. Yeah, the core RIM framework is how you think about automation in an enterprise. And when we think about automation, we think about replacement. But really, we're going to have this digital intelligent core that sits at the middle. Your people live on the outside and they handle the complexity that technology just can't. There's some things that, mm-hmm. you know, machine learning and digital and every all the other technologies available to us could do, but really shouldn't. There's some things that they could <laughs> do, but it's way too expensive. It's still more cost effective mm-hmm. to let people own it. Just because from a reliability standpoint, we, we can't get there. And there's other yeah. parts where we can definitely do it. Why not? Let's put it into place and it makes sense. So that's your intelligent core. What technology can handle more cost effectively than people can. And a lot of times that gives mm-hmm. you the ability to scale faster and take more opportunity sooner. And when you think about that, you're saying, okay, well, where do people fit? Where, you know, where do employees live? Mm-hmm. And that's the rim, the parts that the business can't turn over to technology. And it's important to always realize people are a really critical part of the business. And that never changes. They're always involved. They're always part of deciding what technology to use and how to use it. So they're not threatened by it. They're going to be better at their jobs because of it. Why? Because most of what, uh, you know, especially in leadership roles and process management roles, you spend a good amount of time just moving things from one side of the business to the other. And that's not an effective use of very intelligent people's time. And so once we take Mm -hmm. all of that work away, you have leaders who's one of the main people groups, because we shouldn't let machines lead people. Mm-hmm. That's a really terrible idea. Right. And I don't think we should ever <laughs> <Right>. do that. <laughs> you have domain experts, people who are handling that irreducible complexity, pieces of the business. That the, I mean, a machine just can't, it's not smart enough. We yeah. don't really have a lot mm-hmm. of smarts inside of our machines yet. So we need mm-hmm. domain experts and they need to be freed up to focus on being domain experts, not an expert at moving one thing yeah. to another side of the business. And then finally, you have your people that are creating the technology, deploying it, and supporting it. And so these Mm. three people groups, when you think about a business, domain expertise, leadership, and technical capabilities, those are your three components. And people never leave. Mm -hmm. We just sort of do new things. We focus on new, uniquely human tasks, things that we're better at than any, really any technology will be. Yeah. Does AI change that theory at all? I mean, it's... The explosive growth, and and in fact, I mean, you mentioned people aren't threatened by technology. I, I might disagree in that respect. That that AI's the the explosive growth of AI. I think a lot of people are are concerned about what what jobs may uh, may be taken by AI. Does does AI change that that model? AI yeah, doesn't change the model. What it does mm-hmm. is it makes the paradigm obvious. If your job doesn't involve domain expertise, well, you've never really had a role in the business. 
You're just now <laughs> sort of being notified of that fact. And we're beginning to look at this with all of the that first round big cuts that companies did. They all became more productive. Mm. And so you begin to realize, well, okay, okay, okay. So some of these people were not really contributing to bottom line impacts or top line impacts. Okay. And mm. so on what it really does when you look at more advanced technical capabilities is it reveals the importance of domain expertise. It reveals the importance of leadership. It reveals the importance of having a technology organization that can execute, that can implement. But it also reveals how all of this fluff has sort of accumulated around the sides and we've gotten sort of pudgier than we should be in some companies. It's an opportunity to focus on your domain expertise, but not everyone will take that opportunity. So there's definitely a threat to some groups But I think we're going to see that less as a threat in the next three to four years and more as a, well, what were you a domain expert to begin with? Mm -hmm. Let's go back to that. Let's go back to what you were a domain expert at and let's put you in a role where you can have top and bottom line impacts. Yeah, that makes sense. So as somebody that's been in the business for so long and on the forefront of so much transformation... I want to ask you a two-part question. So do you feel like your experience gives you greater insight into into what's going to happen in the future? And then I want to ask you what you see coming down the pike. I think the frameworks, especially technical strategy, enable you to be sort of a pragmatic futurist. And it's not Mm -hmm. exactly, you know, I've seen so much. I mean, that helped me build the frameworks. But you don't need to reinvent the wheel. If you use my frameworks or someone else's, if you have quality frameworks, you can see around corners just as well as I can. And so it's not really, you know, don't focus on doing what I did. Don't focus on getting all that broad exposure and relearning all the things that I relearned. Aggregate this knowledge by figuring out what all of our frameworks are and pick and choose the best. That would be, you know, if I was giving some advice about don't focus on reinventing my experiences, focus on building your own frameworks and heuristics that help you understand the implications of technology. And instead of focusing on the fantastical things, go for the obvious stuff, because the obvious (laughs) stuff is just as powerful. When you implement earlier than other companies do, knowing the obvious benefits, you have an advantage. Because you're almost always right and you're more prepared for the stuff that no one expected. So there's a significant advantage in just being pragmatic and doing the obvious stuff. Most companies don't do that. They can't execute on obvious. They're looking for, you know, something massively disruptive and not realizing that (laughs) disruptive is simple. Yeah. I like that. That's a great quote. So um, being a technologist, I'm always looking for the technology solution. I'm curious if there are specific technologies um, in the data and software development space that particularly align with your solutions, your frameworks. I think there's this concept of knowledge. One of the right answers is MongoDB. Well, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, MongoDB aligns. But I think the bigger (laughs) paradigm that MongoDB fits into is transitioning from managing data to managing knowledge. When you manage Mm. data, you have all of this really rigid structure. You have all of this really, really 
well-defined, rock hard. This is all what it is. And it doesn't change because if it does, you know, it's got to be that solid rock foundation because if it changes, your application yeah. crashes. <laughs> you know, and it's that yeah. sort of paradigm. But that's not the way knowledge works. Knowledge is hmm. a different construct. We are continually adding to the business's domain knowledge. We are continually bringing new information into the business. That's dynamic. You can't predict structure. And so when you think about mm -hmm. it, if you are rigidly structured, that's definitely going to be good for some types of data. But for knowledge, you need something different. And that's where I think solutions like Mongo and a lot of others, I think that's what you figured out is you figured out that the future is not this clean, easy, but we have to make it mm. clean and easy with our infrastructure because people are really bad at complexity, <laughs> flexibility, <laughs> uncertainty, you know, variability. We're not good as, as people. So we need these interface layers and technology is that interface layer for us to deal with complexity that we're just not ready for. We're not ready for unstructured data. So we need an intermediate layer that can help us mm. turn unstructured data into knowledge. Your infrastructure mm -hmm. and architecture is part of that, but your models are also part of that. It's one of the unexplored areas of generative AI is generative AI can turn unstructured data into something we as people can interact with. And it allows mm -hmm. us to give our domain knowledge to the architecture, to the infrastructure, to that knowledge graph. And it also allows us to get that domain knowledge out of unstructured data. And so we need these mm -hmm. layers that help us to interact with what is now too complex for people to handle alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really where technology goes. And I sort of, you know, sort of didn't answer your last question when you said, you know, the second part, right, when right. you I said, was what's go the future of technology? <laughs> and this is a lot of it, where we, we have data management systems, we need knowledge management systems. We have mm -hmm. ways for people to, inter, you know, interact with data. We need to give them ways to interact with models and knowledge. So there's a completely, mm -hmm. and this is the different paradigm that I see coming very quickly is, the, you know, what's on the other end isn't clean anymore. It's unstructured. It's complex. It could be anything. And you have to be ready for mm -hmm. it could be anything. You don't know where your next data source is coming from. And if you have to build a new pipeline for each initiative, if you have to build a new pipeline every time a new data source comes in, it's not. I mean, come yeah. on. That the, We have to know by now <laughs> that's not the right way to go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you to to go back to that question again. Yep. And, and like, let's let's look five to 10 years in the future mm -hmm. with knowing what we know about the exponential growth of AI. Yep. What kind of changes do you see? So generative is just phase one. And I don't think people mm. understand this. It isn't the AI. This is going to look simplistic in about two years, not even five years. In two years, generative AI is going to look janky. And I want that to be something <laughs> that sinks in and you sort of walk away from this with. Generative AI feels bleeding edge today. In two years, it's going to look like, you know, we're going to look at it like a toy horse and go, come on, man, that's all we had. <laughs> and that's the pace of change. That's the way you have to think about yeah. it is what we have today shouldn't cloud the vision for what's coming next. So next steps, robotics, that's coming in probably in the next two years. It'll have its own chat GPT moment. Uh, 
we're going mm-hmm. to see generative models play a role in that. I hate to say metaverse because it has, you know, just definitely a stink on it, but we're seeing decentralized constructs come back. That's another mm-hmm. theme that's going to be huge over the next five years. We can decentralize now. We have federated learning. We have ways to preserve privacy on device. Apple's going in this direction. So when you have mm-hmm. a centralized model, big model, sort of an average aggregate, and then you have specific weights and fine tuning on device that uses that sensitive data, that's a new paradigm. And that's why I say metaverse Mm -hmm. decentralized, it's coming back because you're going to see these decentralized structures. If I can fit a generative model on device, I don't need continuous access to the internet anymore because the majority Mm -hmm. of the Google searches you do are knowledge. You're just asking questions. You need knowledge. You don't need a resource. You don't need to go to a place. And so having Mm -hmm. that model on device really limits the amount of internet access you need. You still need app access because we want those features and Mm -hmm. those functionalities. And so now we start thinking about a truly decentralized paradigm. The only technology that can manage that is AI. It cannot be managed efficiently by anything else. And so that's where AI is going to start going. It'll force us to do complex systems modeling. That Mm -hmm. has some other interesting implications because with the IoT, we're going to get more data than we've ever had before. Mm -hmm. We're going to be getting it from sources we've never had access to before. So you combine that with the decentralized paradigm with our ability to model complex systems. And suddenly we have the ability to forecast and simulate. Models Mm -hmm. learn better from simulations than they do from data sets. And so now put a generative model together with multiple models, because this is another paradigm. We we sort of already have this, so I'm not really predicting any wild future. We already have models working with models. We've had it forever. We call them ensembles eight years ago. Now we call them agentic systems. I like that word better. So Mm -hmm. we have (laughs) multiple models working together, small models handling very narrow sets of functionality. And now we have generative models that can orchestrate that level of complexity. But we also have the ability Mm -hmm. to create synthetic environments. We can create these highly accurate simulations Now, agents can train themselves inside of these simulations. So it's not a synthetic data set, it's a synthetic environment. And by interacting with Mm. the synthetic environment, they can fine tune themselves. And this is really important because we don't have enough people to train all the models that we need, especially when you start talking about very small, very targeted, very granular models. The more accurate you want them to be, the smaller they have to be and the more targeted they have to be because we need a level of explainability along with their high reliability. So now we have systems that can manage complexity. We have systems that allow Mm -hmm. people to interact with complexity and we have increasing reliability. That's, I mean, really start looking at what that looks like in five to seven years. When it comes to planning, what would it look like to be able to, for a business scenario plan your entire supply chain with your most promising 50 scenarios and then choose the one with the highest likelihood to optimize. Mm -hmm. I mean, change the way you think about planning because right now maybe we can do three scenarios, but if we have highly reliable models, high end compute 
and that access layer, mm -hmm. really that technology access layer that allows us to interact with all of this complexity. What if we could run 100, 200? What if that took a day? That's your five mm -hmm. to 10 year view. What if we had wow. those types of planning capabilities and we could optimize? I could optimize my trip to an amusement park. Right now, we have a hard time with that because there's, you know, 25,000 people in this park. We don't know where they're going or what the lines are going to look like at any given time. But once you give people a complex systems view, you can predict what times each one of the lines will be and how long they will be and when the best time to get into mm. the line is at any <laughs> given time of day. And you can begin to optimize trips in such a way that we function as more of a unified unit that optimizes for mm. all of our outcomes. And now all of the wait yeah. times come down and you start realizing the optimizations that you can achieve. And it's not just for businesses, it's individual experiences. How do we reduce traffic? How do you know, seriously, mm -hmm. I do not want to spend any more time in rush hour. Can we get rid of that? And yeah, with more complex Please. systems <laughs> models, you can. So this is, you know, that's the future. And we think, you know, really science fiction, flying cars, that sort of thing. No, I don't think we understand how this small sounding thing of optimization and complex systems modeling, mm -hmm. that's a game changer. And it's one of those things where it's yeah. kind of obvious models will get more reliable. Mm, yeah. Well, we have a lot of software developers listening. I'm curious with your background and your knowledge in the data science ML space, what does the future of software development look like to you? It's bleak. I hate to say it. It's so bleak. Mm. I mean, change quickly, move from coding and, and you know pounding keyboards type activities to architecture begin to look at bigger pictures, mm. begin to look at architecting software, not coding it yourself. So really yeah. patterns, practices, the, the things that enable a system to scale, the things that enable a system to work with multiple technologies, data, machine learning models, digital technology, distributed, uh, you know, and, and optimizing for compute for each type of workload, you know, really move towards enterprise architecture and more complex software systems architecture. If you bring yourself towards that systems design, systems architecture, cloud architecture, distributed systems, uh, you know, really ML engineering, those are all safe havens because we don't have a mm -hmm. computer that's that smart and we won't for a very long time. But if you're, yeah. if your living depends on you touching keys, you're in trouble. Well, I feel like the writing is on the wall and I, I think you might be right. I choose not to have a bleak outlook on, on life in general, but um, I think we're on a continuum. I think mm -hmm. we no longer use physical punch cards. We no longer have to understand the electrical signals that are, that are generated when you touch a key on a keyboard. Everything has been up leveled. We're, we're now, we're now working in. Uh, you know, object orientation, we're working in cloud. Uh, and I think this is part of the continuum. And I think as we get closer to an AI enabled future, I think you're right. I don't think we're going to be writing hardcore code as much as we do today. But I, I think there still will be a, a space for the creative mind for mm -hmm. the software developer in the future. Yeah. And I think the creativity is really towards the domain expertise figure out mm -hmm. what your real domain expertise is because it isn't code. Uh, 
Mm. And I think once every yeah. software engineer digs down to what they're really good at, it's something more important mm -hmm. than writing code. Mm. Love that. Well, Vin, this has been a great discussion. Is there anything else you want to share with the listeners before we uh, begin to wrap up? Um, no, just prepare yourself for what's next. Skate to opportunities before they're obvious. And you'll mm -hmm. always have, you know, I don't want to end on a bleak note. You'll always have a great career. <laughs> just think about yeah. what's coming next and be ready for it instead of resisting it. And you'll realize that people have a place for a very long time. It's it's mm. bleak for some parts of the occupation, but it's never bleak for human capabilities and domain expertise. Mm. Love that. Well, the book is called From Data to Profit, Vin Vashista. Where can people get the book? Uh, if you head to datascience.vin, uh, you've got links to a ton of different places, but obviously it's on Amazon, Apple Books, uh, all of the standard places that you can get your books. Um, and it's surprisingly easy to find. <laughs> Great. Well, I'll have links in the show notes. So check the show notes for uh, for links to the resources and some of the things we talked about today. Vin, thanks so much. I Thank greatly you. appreciate you taking time uh, to, to join me today. It's been great. Thank you so much.